0: Good morning. You are a beautiful people. (laughs) And our Savior is making you more and more beautiful with every passing week and every passing month and every passing year. It's fun to watch all these little ones make their way out. Some of you have had the remarkable privilege of Standing near the bedside of someone that you loved dearly. And that person was in the throes of death. About to pass from this life to the next. And you had been there at that bedside for quite some time. And at some point, their eyes flew open. And your eyes met. You know they saw you. And some words passed back and forth between you in that moment. And then their eyes closed and a smile crossed their face. And they breathed one final time, inhale, exhale. And they were gone. Some of you have had that experience. If you have, it's one of the most sacred moments you could possibly experience. And the words that passed between you will be etched in your memory for a long, long time because they're the last words that passed between you and your mom before she went on to glory. You'll remember those. Moments like that are few and far between, and they're weightier than most other moments. On the night that Jesus observed the Passover with his disciples, which was the same night that Judas Iscariot would betray him, the Lord Jesus turned his face upward and had a conversation with his father, and the disciples got to listen in on that conversation. This morning, we'll be considering a few things that he said just hours before he was crucified. Would you join me in prayer as we begin? Father in heaven, before the foundations of the earth were established, you planned the crucifixion of your son so that sinful people could be redeemed and promised an inheritance. John 17 begins with the words, After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. You had seen that moment with perfect clarity before you ever said, let there be light. You knew that prior to his crucifixion, Jesus would lift his face toward heaven and pray. You knew that within a few hours of this prayer, he would turn, you would turn away from him as he hung naked on the cross covered with our sin. How precious this prayer must have been to you. As your only begotten Son turned toward his Father. As we consider a portion of Jesus' prayer this morning, would it be that the words he spoke on our behalf would be as precious to us as they were to you that evening that Jesus spoke them? Because it's in his name that we pray. Amen. As you open your Bibles to John chapter 17, be thinking about what a treasure we have in John's record of Jesus' high priestly prayer. We'll be looking this morning at the final section of that prayer, the portion where we find Jesus praying specifically for us. So we'll be in John seventeen, twenty to 23. Jesus had already prayed for himself. He had prayed for the 11 disciples who were still around him. he was about to pray for the people who would place their faith in him as a result of their testimony. Picture now Jesus, face turned heavenward, he's praying just hours before his crucifixion. Verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone, meaning the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one father, just as you are in me And I am in you. May they also be in us. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me. That they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me. May they be brought to complete unity. To let the world know that you sent me. And have loved them even as you have loved me. Beloved, there is no way... The disciples could possibly have known what Jesus would experience within just hours of that prayer. They heard him pray, but there's no way they could have conceived of what was about to take place. Hours after praying the prayer we just read, Judas Iscariot would come to Jesus in the garden. He would kiss him on the cheek, and that little kiss would start a cascade of horrors That would land Jesus on the cross. How weighty was this conversation between God the Father and God the Son. So let's work through our passage. The first thing I'd like you to see is who Jesus is praying for. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, my prayer is not for them alone. He had just finished praying for the disciples, those 11 apostles who were still gathered around him. Judas Iscariot had left by this point, so there's 11 of those apostles around him. And he says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. At the end of his prayer, Jesus is praying for people who will place their faith in him because of the message that they will preach. So is Jesus, does Jesus have in mind when he's praying this, is he, is he praying just for those people in that first century, people who respond to the preaching of Peter and James and John? Is he praying just for the people who will pl- place their faith in him when Peter preaches that first Christian sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? Is he praying for those folks we, absolutely he's praying for those folks. But his prayer is far more expansive in scope. He's praying for every generation of Christians who would ever exist between the time when he prayed that prayer and when Jesus would come back in glory to the earth. He's praying for every generation of believers. How do we know that? Look again at the passage at verse 20. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, namely through the message of the apostles. Christian, why do you believe? Here we are, 2,000 years removed from that prayer. Why do you believe as you do in the Lord Jesus? Well, at some point, at some time, the Lord gave you his Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit enlivened your heart. You were regenerated, and, and the Holy Spirit gave you a gift faith so yeah you believe because the holy spirit's in your heart but you also believe because at some point someone took the time to read to you from the bible or you took the time yourself to open the scriptures and you read about jesus's miraculous birth to a virgin you read about the wise men who came from somewhere over in the east to come visit him after he was born You read about his miracles. You read about his teaching. You read about the people who persecuted him. You read about his crucifixion and his resurrection and his ascension. You read about those things. You believed because of the message and the testimony of the apostles. Do you see here in verse 20, when Jesus is praying here in the garden, he specifically had your face in his mind's eye. He's praying for you. These are some of the last requests that Jesus would make to his Father before dying on the cross. How carefully do you think God the Father is leaning in to listen to his Son at this moment when he knows the crucifixion is the very next chapter? I'm going to read verses 21 through 23 once again. And I'm going to do it differently this time. I'm going to emphasize several words as we go through here. Because I'd like you to see a theme that is developing in this passage. Verse 21. That all of them, meaning us. That all of them may be one, Father. Just as you are in me. And I am in you you may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me i have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one i in them you in me may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have given them And have loved them even as you have loved me. So what did the Son of God prioritize in one of his last conversations with his Father prior to his crucifixion? Stare at verse 21 again. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, May they also be in us. The kind of unity Jesus intends his bride, the church, to experience is modeled directly after the unity that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has with God the Father. Do you see that there? William Hendrickson points out that the unity that exists between the Father and Son is not only a model for Christians to follow. But it's actually the very foundation upon which our unity in Christ is possible. It's the foundation of our unity is Jesus' unity with the Father. It's both the model and the foundation that makes our unity possible. So, question. In what sense is Jesus in the Father? And in what sense is the Father in in the sun, there are many places in the New Testament that we could turn to begin answering that question, and we'll only have time to consider two of them. The first comes from the, the, the first chapter of the book that we're already considering It comes out of the first chapter of the book of John. John writes this. he says, "In the beginning was the word, and if you 've turned there, if you're looking there, the word capital W." John's referring to the Lord Jesus by using the word, word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So how are God the Father and God the Son unified? Let me begin answering that question by asking another question. How did God the Father create? You know the answer to that question. You've read Genesis. And God said, let there be light. God is creating by speaking. What's John doing here in chapter 1? He's demonstrating to us that somehow God the Father is speaking Jesus is the word he's speaking. Try to figure that out. Friends, if we could if we could take the Trinity and get him all neatly boxed up in a way that we could fully comprehend and explain he would cease being God. That's, that's the best I can do with it. Is it you have God the Father speaking Jesus is the word of creation. Because John says there's nothing created that was created apart from the Word, the Son. It's fascinating. So at creation, God is speaking and somehow Jesus is the Word that is spoken. How closely associated are God and His Word? How closely associated are you... And your words. So you can ask any newly married couple this question and get the answer to that. We could ask Jeremy and Brooke this morning. I don't see him here anywhere. You could ask Jeremy and Brooke, how closely are words associated with who you are? And you picture Jeremy and Brooke standing here on the day that they got married and Bill Park standing in front of them and he looks at his grandson and he says, Jeremy, do you take Brooke to be your lawfully wedded wife? Now, in that moment, how closely is Brooke associating Jeremy with Jeremy's word? Jeremy is going to say, I do. Right? Jeremy's word is inseparable from Jeremy. Why? Well, because by saying that, and those are powerful words, by the way. Those are creational words because of the words, I do do are part of what creates that marriage covenant. They're creational. Jeremy says, I do, and he enters into a marriage covenant with Brooke. Brooke doesn't marry, I do. Right? She doesn't marry the words. The words create the covenant, and there's this inseparable union between those two people. The Apostle John was showing us the same thing about the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. You can't separate one from the other. And John doesn't separate them. and he, Instead, he says the Word was God. Translation, if you have encountered God the Son, you have encountered God the Father. They're inseparable. When Jesus is praying in John 17, he prays that all of them may be one Father, Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. Now, make no mistake. Jesus is not saying that you and I become God in some way. That's not what he's saying. He's praying about an unbreakable connection that identifies you and me with the God who saved us. Our very identity becomes rooted in him. And as a result, our thoughts begin to change, and our thoughts begin looking like His thoughts. The priorities that we have begin looking like His priorities. If we're in Christ, our character begins reflecting the character of the Lord who bought us. So much so that when other people look at us, they say, I see the Lord in you. Just this week... Our staff was praying together. We have a staff call every morning at 10 o'clock. Our staff was praying together, and I remember something that Don Kimball prayed this week. She prayed She prayed, "Lord, if there's anything good that other people see in me, I praise you because it's only there because I'm in you. It exists in me because I'm in you." Do you get that? And that's the reality. Further down in our passage, look at verse 22. Jesus prays, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. So the changes that I just named, okay, a new identity, a transforming thought life, a different set of priorities, a transforming character. Those things are the first fruits of the glory that Jesus is giving us. The apostle Paul says that if you are in Christ Jesus, you are already a new creation in Christ. And part of that new creation in Christ means you new character, new priorities. Those are the first fruits of glory. So when Jesus is praying here and he says, I have given them the glory that you gave me. He's not just looking forward to that time when you will receive a new body in heaven. When those aches and pains will go away and you will have a new transformed glorious body. He's talking about a reality that's a reality right now. Is that because... You're in the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord Jesus Christ is in you. Those glories are there in seed form and they're beginning to bear fruit. Do you see that? What else does Jesus have in mind while he's praying about unity? He wants his people to experience as we're located in the Father and in the Son. This is from Colossians chapter 1. And again, we're trying to answer the question, how is Jesus in the Father? How is the Father in Jesus? Because that's both our model and our foundation for unity. Colossians chapter 1 verse 18. Paul says this. And he, meaning Jesus, is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I'd like to highlight just one truth from what what. What Paul says there in Colossians, is from verse 19, he says, For God, meaning the Father, God the Father was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Christ. So if our unity in God is intended to mirror the unity that Jesus shares with the Father... Then Colossians 1 shines a remarkable light on an aspect of that unity. Paul says that God the Father is pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Jesus. What in the world does that mean for you and me? So picture being here on a Sunday morning. You don't have to because you're here. And Luke, during his worship service, took us to the Apostles' Creed. So sometimes the worship leader will say, Christian. What do you believe? This morning we quoted the Apostles' Creed. Sometimes we quote the Nicene Creed. Okay? So picture being here, and the worship leader has us in the Nicene Creed. The second portion of that creed is talking about the nature of who Jesus is. It says this, We believe, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. Begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. So, how is God the Son unified with God the Father? In that creed, you see the word begotten a couple different times. The best explanation I have ever heard of eternally begotten of the Father. The best thing I can think of, the best thing I've ever heard is this. Picture you're outside on a sunny day and there's not a cloud in the sky and the sun is shining bright in the sky. And you can't look directly at it, but you can look toward it. And all around that star, that burning star is just light that is constantly emanating from the sun. S-U-N. Light is constantly pouring forth from that star. In a lot of ways, that's a picture of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Jesus is constantly coming forth. He's constantly being begotten of the Father. He's always proceeding forth from the Father. He is God of God. The Creed says, of the same substance, and some translations say, of the same essence. With the Father. In other words, the idea is that Jesus Christ is made of the same stuff as God the Father. He is no less God than God the Father. And so we wrestle with language begotten of the same substance, of the same essence. And what we're trying to say is Jesus is God. You can't separate them, even though they're a trinity. If, John 17, if in John 17 when Jesus prayed that you and I would be in him in the same way that he is in the Father and the Father is in I would argue he had these kind of things in mind how was God the Father in God the Son Paul says in Colossians that God the Father was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in the Son How does the fullness of God dwell in your little body? Simply put, in and through the presence of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is no less God than the Father and the Son, and He is constantly proceeding forth from the Father and the Son. So if you're a Christian, He lives in you. He's working to form Jesus in you. He's changing your nature It's not that you and I become gods. It's that you and I become godly. Paul says this in Romans chapter 8. He says, you however are not controlled by the sinful nature but by the spirit. If the spirit of God lives in you and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, Your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. And so God the Father answered Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane by sending the Holy Spirit to live in our hearts. We are in Christ by faith. And God is in us by his Holy Spirit. Now we began the sermon today thinking about the weightiness of last words. And verse verse 23 is very near the end of the prayer that Jesus prayed before departing for the Garden of Gethsemane and his betrayal at the hands of Judas Iscariot. So let's ask the question. Why did Jesus pray the way he did? Why did he pray about our location in him and in the Father? And why did he care so much about our unity in him and with one another? Verse 21 says this: So they also may may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now look at look at verse 23. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. There is something very supernatural about Christians who are unified in Christ and in God that supernaturally testifies to the watching world regarding the Lord's presence and love for people who are so unified. Why did Jesus pray so fervently about our unity in Him? Because He wanted the world to recognize Him in the midst of His body. Now, if you're new to Brick Lane, I think it'd be real easy to be tempted to think we're a really homogenous body, right? We think a lot alike. We it's just similar in so so many ways you could be tempted to think that unity in a body like ours would be really easy to accomplish. So you could think, well, I wonder why Jesus prayed about unity, because it seems like here, at least here in this church, unity is real easy. Why would he pray? Why would he care so fervently about something like unity? I've been here a long time at this church, and I can tell you a few things about what I know. We have people here at this church who love, love, love cold rainy days and moon chairs and books and and hot cups of tea and cats curled up on the windowsill. We also have NASCAR fans. We have people here at Brick Lane who are highly politically involved and motivated. And we have people who have never watched a presidential debate and don't care at all. We have people who are single adults who have never been married, are now in their 40s and 50s, and we have people who have been married with decades who have a whole tribe of children trailing behind them. We have people at Brick Lane who love big cities and architecture and urban trains and the sound of police cars on those on those roads in the cities, and we have Ben Pupek who would far rather be on the side of the tree with his bow. We have people who love to dress up and we have people who prefer dressing down. We have people who love to sing songs that were written by Isaac Watts. And we have people who love to sing songs that were written by Matt Mayer. We have people who are very black and white in terms of how they think. And everything you say to that person is going to be taken literally. Literally. And we have people in our congregation who are really comfortable with a lot of gray, a lot of nuance. We have a really large group of widows. And we have teenage boys. Put that together. During COVID, it was really interesting, wasn't it? We had, we had a group of people who were saying, the most logical, the most loving, the most wise, the most godly thing I could do is to make sure I get all the vaccines and I always have a mask on. And we have people that would say, no, the wisest, most godly, the most caring, the most just wise thing to do would be to resist getting the vaccines and to not wear a mask. Were any of us surprised at how quickly lines were drawn around that subject? And we had a whole group of people in the middle of it. We have people here at Brick Lane who are convinced... That their children should come of age and express faith before they're baptized. We have a lot of people here at Brick Lane that would say, no, 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 no. My children should be baptized as infants before they can speak a word. We have people of color in this church. And you don't have to look around to know there's a whole bunch of white people here. Which is, I think, why some people would think we're really homogenous. But we're not. We have people who are computer geniuses, and we have people that think that Ram is a kind of pickup truck. We have very young Christians, and we have Christians who have been believers for as long as they can remember and have been Christians for a very long time. We have lifetime foreign missionaries who are here with us, and we have people who have never left the continental United States we have people in our midst who have life-shaping disabilities. And we have people here who are absolute physical specimens. What's my point? As homogeneous as this little church in Elberson may appear, we are a very diverse group of people. Why did Jesus, just before his death, pray so fervently that believers would be in him and would be unified Well, because unity in the midst of this kind of diversity testifies to the watching world that Jesus is, in fact, in our midst. How does that work? How does that look? Well, this past summer, Cindy and Bryn and I spent five weeks in Italy ministering with our missionaries there, Bob and Sue Comer. When we returned here to Elverson, uh, I had an experience that really just set me back on my heels. I think it was a Sunday morning, I was walking up the hallway toward my office, and Riley Driscoll stopped me and she said, Mr. Carter, my family and I have been praying for you every day since you left for Italy. Well, you could have knocked me over with a feather, right? Right? What, do, what in the world do a 15-year-old girl and a 56-year-old grandfather have in common? I have this young lady who's interested in, in something I was doing. Ultimately, the answer to that question is found right in our passage. Look at verse 23. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and, here it is, have loved them even as you have loved me. How unusual is it for a 15-year-old girl to approach a 56-year-old man to encourage him? Truly. I'm pretty invisible to most 15-year-olds. Right? I, I have this white beard. I'm bald. I'm a little overweight. don't say anything. And I have a personality that's forceful enough that it could be a little bit scary for a 15-year-old girl. And yet I've got this young lady who's coming to me and she's, she's pouring out encouragement. Jesus prayed in John 17 that Christians would have God the Father's love in them. Riley has the love of God in her heart. She cared to build me up because we belong to the same God. We have the same Father. We belong to the same Savior. In other words, Riley and I have the same last name. I ought to be asking the question, why would she not come and encourage me? She has that kind of love in her heart. The love that the Father put there. Jesus says that when unity like this exists within the body, that the watching world would sit up and take notice. Have you noticed it here? at Brick Lane that kind of unity I have I've seen young men like Tommy Colbert and Darren McArdle slowing down long enough to care about the widows in our congregation to know them and to love them and to pour into them you ever seen one of those young men with a widow in the hall and they bend over with that woman sitting at the deacon bench and they get FaceTime with that widow you ever seen that I hope you have. I've seen men of color, like Chris Hampton, drive up the Sunny Crest to take a white brother, David Landis, off the hill for lunch. I've seen worship leaders who have really diverse preferences in terms of music build one another up by saying, You know that service you led today? Oh, I was so helped to worship today, thank you for leading us in worship today. I've heard about many of our older women who no longer have the ability to travel and yet they write letters to encourage missionaries who are coming home from short-term missions. I have seen Nadia Kurtz and Laura Lambert walking up and down the hall with Lonnie during worship services because Lonnie couldn't hold still. I've seen many, many of our members who have differing views on secondary areas of theology agree to disagree and yet continue to invest in one another's lives. Beloved, that shouldn't work. Think about it. That shouldn't work. The church shouldn't work. It shouldn't be possible for bookworms and NASCAR fans. For able-bodied people and the disabled, for people of such varied ages, for people who are Democrats and Republicans and Libertarians and Independents, it shouldn't be possible for computer geeks and rednecks, for blue-collar and white-collar, for people of varied races, for country bumpkins and urban socialites, for foreigners and generational Americans. For opera and grand old opry. I'm looking at the Hornburgers right now. For, to flourish in the same body. Except that the son of God on the night he was betrayed. Had a conversation with his heavenly father. This is what he asked his father for. That each of us by being located in him. And in his father. Would experience the love that the father has lavished on us. And that as a result our unity as a body in him. Would be compelling. So if you're here this morning, and you know that you are not yet in Christ and in God. If the thought of young men caring for widows. If the thought of NASCAR fans loving bookworms. If the thought of people with vastly divergent political views loving one another well. Because they belong to Jesus. If life like that sounds compelling to you, you first need to be found hidden in the Lord Jesus Christ. I would really encourage you, if you're here this morning and the things that we have been talking about out of John 17, you would look at that and you would say, I know I'm not in Jesus But what that bald guy up front has been talking about in terms of the compelling beauty of unity in the body of Christ is really attractive to me. If that's you this morning, in just a few moments we're going to have two elders and their wives, two church leaders and their wives up here in this front corner, and they are up here specifically to pray with you, to answer questions for you about what it means to actually be in Christ. We would urge you, if you're in that boat this morning and you have questions, please come forward, ask those questions, and to be prayed for. If you're here this morning and you know that you are in Christ Jesus, but you're not experiencing the kind of unity we've been discussing this morning, can I make a suggestion? I'm very aware that the picture I've painted of the unity that we've seen here at Brick Lane looks a whole lot like a Norman Rockwell painting. It's all romantic and clean. It looks easy. You're looking at that painting and you're you're seeing those two people together and you're thinking, oh, that's easy. That's easy. Um, the reality is unity in the midst of diversity, like what we have here, is really messy. It's really costly. It doesn't just happen. So think about this. When Jesus crossed the gulf that separated sinful humanity from a holy God, it was a costly and bloody condescension. As different as you may be from the person who's sitting two rows in front of you, here's what I can promise you. The difference between you and a person sitting two rows from you is infinitely smaller than the difference between a holy son of God and you in other words jesus condescended so so much further with such a greater gap between him and me than between me and anybody in this room truly jesus went to the cross so that you could be found in him the father poured his love into you by sending jesus to that cross and sending his holy spirit into your heart to produce faith Loving people that are different than we are is costly. So it's easy to love people who get my jokes. It's really easy to love people who think like I do. It's easy to love people who kind of do life like I do. Here's the thing. If I have close friendships with people who are like me, that can happen And God doesn't need to be in the middle at all. So, if I like fishing. Hi, Andrew. Where's Andrew? If I like to go fishing, I can hang out with other fishermen. And we can enjoy one another's company and never talk about God. We can just be focused on fishing. You can have a lot of friendships like that. There's absolutely nothing supernatural about them. The kind of community that Jesus is praying here is the kind of community that transcends real, significant differences. If Jesus' prayer in John 17 is to be answered in our lives, then the love we demonstrate to the people around us will need to reflect the same kind of expensive, bloody love that he showed us. Here's what you know. It's hard to love people who vote differently than you do. It's hard to love people who are loud if you're a quiet person. It's hard to love people who are comfortable with nuance when you tend to view the world through a really black and white lens and you tend to look at everything literally. But I guarantee you, it was harder for a holy God to love sinners because it cost him the cross. Brothers and sisters, if the Father has poured his love into you, and you're not experiencing the kind of unity that Jesus has asked the Father for, would you pray in the next few moments that the love he has poured into you might translate into sacrificial love for people who are somehow different than you in this body. Could we take just a few minutes? Would you pray about these things? I'll close us in just a moment. Would you stand if you're able to receive the benediction? And now, Christian, may you be found hidden in Christ and in God the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit living in you. And may the unity that comes from having been hidden there Well up in expressions of love for God and for the diverse body of believers around you. In Jesus' name, amen. Blessings go in peace.